0: It's time to blow the trumpet in Zion. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel with Pastor Ray Greenlee.
1: satisfied
2: Giant killing, giant killing. Mighty God, there's a giant today that looms over this land and that must be killed. And I ask that you would unveil our eyes and our hearts and make plain to us our course of action. Lord, we've come to this place for you. Jesus, we have come to this place for you. We've not come to be comforted or to be coddled. We've not come to be loved by each other. Lord, we have come for you. You are the desire of our hearts. So, Lord, I ask you to move in this place, and I ask you to eat, to meet each boy and girl, each man and woman. Meet us today, Jesus. I pray in your holy name. Amen. There is a sitting king by the name of Saul. He is a ferocious warrior. He leads the troops into battle, time after time, and they are successful. But God has left this man and has sent to him an evil spirit, and so he is deeply troubled of heart. Samuel is the judge, and the Lord tells him, go anoint the man I've chosen, king. Well, that was a dangerous thing to do. There was already a sitting king. That was treason. But the Lord told him what to do. Take this heifer offer a sacrifice in Bethlehem. And so he goes to Bethlehem, and the elders are terrified. No doubt some of them are thinking in their hearts, Samuel knows about that cheating of the widow, or Samuel knows about how I sold that sick cow and it died. He's come to judge. It's going to cost us money. They were trembling, the scriptures tell us. Because the judge had come. They ask, have you come in peace? Oh, yes, I've come in peace. You could almost hear the sound of fear draining away. We find the story in First Samuel 16th chapter. When Samuel arrives, he tells Jesse that he is to bring all of his sons to the banquet. And he does, except the one out in the field, the little one that always causes the trouble. The one who always speaks up when he shouldn't speak up. The one who is so precocious, so bright. I mean, Brother Eleb, the oldest, is kind of a dumb, a dumb ox. He's big and he's strong, but he doesn't have much up here. And he hates his little brother. Well, this will unfold, but look with me. When they arrived, Samuel saw Elab, verse 6, and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord because he looks so much like King Saul. But the Lord said to Samuel in verse 7, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now this message will pass you by if you don't understand what I just said. The Lord is looking at your heart right now. And your standing before God is not based on how you're dressed. Your standing before God is not based on anything of the external world. It is based on your heart. How is your heart with Jesus? He knows in your heart if you're lusting after darkness. He knows in your heart if you desire the things of the world. He knows that. He is judging you based on not the show you put on and not the dance you do. He is judging you based on what he sees in your heart. What does he see in your heart? Yes, even the young people. He's looking at your heart. He knows what's in your heart. You can't hide it from him. You can hide it from mom and dad. You can't hide it from Jesus. He's looking right into your heart. And he knows whether you feel better about the worldly activities or if you feel Some kind of drawing to Jesus. I mean, how's Jesus going to compete with the video games? I mean, hey, which would you rather do if you were a kid play with the Xbox or read your Bible? I mean, would you rather go to the movies and watch the action on the big screen or would you rather sit and read this Bible? Well, I can tell you right up what I'd like to do. I want to go watch the movie. I find video games a lot more exciting in the flesh than reading a Bible. I mean, after all, the Bible's been laying around for 2,000 years. It's gathered some dust. And I want what's fresh and new and what's hopping and popping that says, hey, this is exciting. You know, who doesn't like to drive the race car in the video games or race around the streets of Washington, D.C., seeing how many times you can smash somebody up? Hey, that's what we're dealing with. I know none of you adults are interested in NASCAR racing. And I know none of you adults would even consider looking at a football game. I mean, how's this going to compete to Super Bowl? So you know what the answer of the church is. Let's just go ahead and baptize and bring it into the church. I mean, hey, this is not new. Look what we did with Christmas. We said they've got a great thing going with their Festival of Lights. They've got a great thing going with all of their Yule logs and all of their wonderful foods. Let's just bring that right on into the church. Let's baptize it and then it's ours. I mean, Constantine understood the deal. They had tried to exterminate these Christians by putting them up on crosses and pouring pitch over them and lighting them with fire. They had tried destroying these Christians by putting them in the arenas and letting wild animals loose on them. They had tried everything humanly possible to kill these Christians, and they couldn't kill them. The more Christians died, their blood brought up more Christians. So you know what the answer is? Let's make Christianity the official religion of Rome. If we can't beat them, let's join them. I mean, is this new? Do you remember Balaam said, hey, I can't curse these Israelites. Send your women in to seduce them into worshiping your gods, and then God will curse them. If you can't kill a Christian, seduce a Christian, and do it in such a way that Christians feel good about it. And so you take a radio station that's a Christian radio station, and it's getting about 1.5%. Of the listening audience. That's about the same as classical music. That's about the same amount that you say a a Korean radio station will draw or a Spanish radio station will draw. They'll draw about 1.5% of the whole audience possibility. So the Christians say, look, we need to change this. And the way we can change this, we can have our artists begin to cross over and they'll begin to perform music that the world likes, but we're going to put Christian words to the music. And so a radio station in Washington, D.C. decides that they're going to host a morning show, and they're going to play all rock music, but with Christian lyrics. Their ratings go up 500%. And the dear person who is hosting this show, look what a wonderful thing Jesus has done. This is Jesus. Look, he's got all these people coming to listen to our Christian radio station. That's happening right now as I speak to you. The Christian Broadcasting Association deliberately, as a strategy, said, if we will play rock music on our stations and play Christian lyrics, we will draw people. Then we'll have an opportunity to introduce them to Jesus. Just the opposite has happened. Of course, those who own the radio stations are making big bucks because it's money that drives the gospel in America. It's money that drives the gospel in America. And so as we walk through this story, I want you to hold these things in mind that when the Lord looks, he does not consider the appearance or the height. He rejects people on the basis of what's going on in their hearts. So when the Lord looks at the American church, he doesn't say, how successful is it? He doesn't count bodies, bucks, and bricks. He says, how faithful are they? He doesn't even say, how good are they? He says, how faithful are they? Do they love the world and the things of the world? Or do they love my cross? Have they died and followed me? Or are they walking in sin against me? in rebellion against. Him. So now we have David anointed king over Israel, but no re- no one really understands what that means. All they've seen is Samuel has poured oil on 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 David's head, but the holy spirit now falls on David. He becomes a man of incredible strength in the spirit. He's still a boy on the outside. He's probably a teenager. He's responsible for the care of the sheep in the family. The Philistines gather to put down once and for all King Saul. They scorn the children of Israel as backward people. The Philistines own the technology for iron smelting. They own the technology for creating implements of war. They own the technology for warfare. The children of Israel come with clubs, hoes. Sticks. But now you have the children of Israel up on one side of a ravine, and you have up on the other side the Philistines and a valley in between. It's a perfect stalemate. The Philistines dressed in their heavy armor and carrying their weapons of war have a difficult time scrambling up between the rocks. They're easy target for rocks. The children of Israel are not going to come down into that plain and fight them on their own terms because then their chariots will run over them. And so the days stretch on, but the Philistines have a champion. His name is Goliath. Every morning and evening, he would stand and he would shout at the ranks of Israel. Chapter 17, verse 8. Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And all of the children of Israel tried to become invisible. Now you would think that this would be just the kind of challenge that King Saul would be ready for. After all, he was head and shoulders taller than anyone else. He was the big man. But he's cowering in fear like all the others because he knows the power of God has departed from him. And he can't come up with a strategy to deal with this Goliath. He with the others are terrified of Goliath. Well, David is running back and forth between taking care of the sheep and bringing food supplies to big brother Elab and the other soldiers. And so he brings the grain and he brings the cheeses. He's the supply line for his family. And he hears this giant shouting his taunts. This had gone on for 40 days. David goes down early in the morning and is there for the morning show and as soon as he hears his heart stirs within him and he begins to say this should not be this is wrong i could kill that man he would fall and then he hears the reward that is being offered no taxes for the family i mean you can hear it being said now look anybody who will kill that giant can have a million dollars if that's what they want you just kill the giant and you're home free unlimited wealth you can have the you can have the daughter of the king as your wife just kill this man. Well, David is speaking so boldly and Elab hears him. Now look, we all have an Elab in our life. Elabs always come big and dumb and they've always got a mouth on them and they always tell you, you should stay in your place. They always have the same message. Go home and take care of your sheep. You are nobody. You can't do anything. Just shut up. They always come to defend the status quo. They always tell you why a change can't be made. Now, what do you do with an Elab? You either kill him or run from him. David chose to run from him. After all, it was his brother. Now, can I say this kindly to you? Almost always, Elab comes as a family member. And the family member says, you're spending too much time reading your scriptures. You're spending too much time praying. You're giving too much money to Jesus. You're over the edge. You're becoming radical. I don't know who you are anymore. You have lost all of your balance in life. I liked you the way you used to be when you were normal. Can't you just lay this down, this fad that you've gotten into? Can't you just drop this fad and let's get back to normal life? How long are you going to be on this religion kick? That's what Elab always says. And if you don't have a family member saying that to you, you will soon. Now, don't kill him. Just run from him. That family member is not Goliath.
3: Oh, Jesus, thank you, Father.
2: You need to differentiate between the Goliath who's taunting the Lord and Elab who's your family member, they just need to be loved. Now, I know sometimes you just want to kill Elab, but he's not Goliath. You've got giants to kill. Don't waste your ammunition on your family. (laughs) Don't let it destroy what Jesus is trying to accomplish in your heart. Press into Jesus. Pray for your family member. Don't curse them and don't stone them. You know how easy it is for you to turn into an Elab? I know we don't have any Elabs here. Big and dumb, self righteous, full of pride and arrogance, determined to straighten everybody out, pass judgment on them, tell them how dumb they are. I mean, that's Elab. You're not Elab. You're David, called by God, anointed by the Spirit ready to kill giants. So you've got to be clear about who you are. And don't let the devil tell you you're somebody you're not. Now, now some of you have faces like persimmons. You're not liking this. It's all right. I won't stone you. I'll just love you as Elab. Now, let's go another step. King Saul calls for David, and he says to him, you can't go out and fight this Philistine. You're only a boy. Goliath has been fighting men from his youth. And verse 34, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. David has a testimony of victory in his heart. Now, the reason Elab cannot stop David from killing giants is because he already has a testimony in his heart that God is faithful. If you have never killed a lion or a bear, how are you going to kill Goliath? And the lion comes to steal and to consume and to eat. And when the lion comes, some of you roll over. You've got to start with the lion and the bear before you get to Goliath. Some of you are going to go home after this service. You're going to go into your living room and you're going to sit down and you're going to pick up that flipper and you're going to go right to the television. The television is the lion. Some of you are going to go home and you're going to pick up the videos. Some of you are going to pick up the Game Boy. They're the lions. They're the bears. They're what steal from you the spirit of the living God. Some of you are going to go home, and you're going to pick up all of your responsibilities. You're going to pick up all of the duties that you think, as the responsible one, you are supposed to pick up. They are the lions and the bears. If you can't kill the lion or the bear, how are you going to deal with Goliath? There has to be a testimony built in your heart That you know who God is and you see his power coming and defeating the sin that so easily besets you. Those sins are the lions and the bears. If you have no victory in holiness, how are you going to deal with Goliath? Some of you are under the illusion that you can tame the lion. You give him a can of food and you say, Come here in my living room and let me pet you. You try to play with the lion and you say, Look, I've got the lion under control. I'm only watching good stuff on television. Or some of you say, no, I've got the alcohol under control. I can have a beer once in a while. It's all right. I've got the lion under my control. I'm the master of the lion. A lion is never tamed, and a sin is never tamed. It'll play along with you until it has you in the place it wants you, and then it has you for lunch. And you say, what happened? I thought my lion was tame. Lions aren't tamed. Bears aren't tame. What's your history of lion killing and bear killing? When you tell me your history of lion killing, I'll tell you your possibilities with Goliath. You see, we don't want we don't want to deal with the lion and the bear, and we want to keep Elab happy. You understand? God has set this deal up so that you can't keep people happy. So, Sam, or so uh, David says, "I've taken out the lion and the bear." The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul says to David, go and the Lord be with you. So Saul dresses David in his own armor. He clomps around in it. I can't go fight in this armor. This is yours. I have to fight in my own armor. <sighs> Look at this interesting statement in verse 40. This is First Samuel 17, verse 40, then he took his staff. You know what a staff is? It's a stick. He took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the stream. Why would he choose five stones? Did he think if I, if I can get off five stones, that's going to be the maximum I can use, and then he's going to kill me? I don't know. They say the, the army that wins is the one that has the best artillery. He put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. And he said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And now David preaches one of the most awesome sermons ever recorded in the word of God. This is a sermon. You come against me with a sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. All the Philistine could do was attack. Words were over. Reaching into the bag, taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sunk into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. He triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. And David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword, drew it from the scabbard. After he had killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. And when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. For those scientifically minded among you, it is estimated that a stone coming from a sling such as David had traveled with a force of 5,000 pounds of impact. You know what the sling was? A long string about this long, usually of leather, with a little leather piece connected And another piece of string on the other side. One had a loop around the finger. And it was swung like this. And when you release that one cord, it would release the stone. And David at 30 feet never missed. And 5,000 pounds of impact crashed into this man's head. And he fell dead. Now let's talk for a moment about the giant that we're facing. Holy Spirit. I ask you to give me words to describe the giant that we are now facing. Mighty God, thank you, Jesus. We are facing a giant so huge and so dangerous that I have sat in my prayer room for the last week and just wept and said, Lord, I'm so incapable of even speaking about this giant. I don't know how to begin to speak about him. This giant does not come and stand and taunt God's people. This giant is the friendly, jolly green giant. This giant comes saying how much he loves you, how much he appreciates you, how wonderful you are. Jan and I were sitting with a Muslim couple. We were a little bit unsure about this evening of dinner together with this couple because we weren't sure what topics we'd find comfortable to speak about. As we began to talk with them, we suddenly discovered that we had everything in the world to talk with them about. I asked him the question, I said, Are you an American first or a Muslim first? He said, Oh, I'm an American first. I said, Oh, you're a cultural Muslim. Well, yes, you could say that. I sat with a Buddhist recently. I wondered, What will I have to say to this Buddhist person? And then I discovered that they were not a Buddhist first. They were an American first. The American religion is alive and well. And the American religion says every man has his own independence. And every man does what he thinks best as long as he doesn't hurt anybody else. And the American religion says we must be very tolerant of one another. And we must not speak in any way that would confront sin. Oh, wait a minute, I can't say that word sin in the American religion. And so at Willow Creek, they have by intentional design in their staff meeting said, we will not use the word sin in our church. We will instead speak about mistakes, learnings, problems. After all, God is our facilitator. And so in the American religion, we don't judge anything. We don't say alcohol is wrong. We don't say drugs are wrong. We don't say pride is sin. We don't say that adultery is sin. We don't say that pride is sin. No, we say that is self-esteem. In fact, in one Methodist publication addressed to young people, they said that a lack of self-esteem would probably have a profound impact upon their ability to know God. So so the American religion says I must have pride in order to know God. And so now the worship service of the American church must be must be positive and upbeat. It must encourage, it must have empathy and the pastor must show real compassion and passion. And so when you come into the American church you need to be excited and enthusiastic, and you need to have a a band going, and you need to play the rock music. That's what the American religion says. The giant we're facing is American culture. Now, please try to understand me when I say this. The American Buddhist, the American Muslim, and the American Christian have more in common than a Christian in America and a Christian in China. Because the gospel being taught in America is a totally different gospel than the one being taught by Christians in China. In China, they are teaching that sin is still sin. And they're still teaching that the wages of sin is death. But in America, the wages of sin are not death. Let me explain. Let's say that we're in a high school setting, I'm the principal, and a student steals something from another student, and he's brought to my office. How should I handle this problem? Well, I should do it by by saying, son, why did you do this? How do you feel about this? If he says, I just did it because I wanted to do it, I'm to say, but you see, as we live in America, we have to respect each other's rights. And so, You can't always be stealing from people in America. What I would not be allowed to say as a principal would be, son, that was sin. And if you sin against God, you're in danger of hell. And to help you understand that, drop your drawers. We're going to teach you a lesson. No, no, we don't do that in America. In America, we say there is no penalty except the counselor's office. It's psychology 101. And so as a pastor, I was trained in psychotherapy. I was taught, I was told, when you sit down with someone, you must be empathetic and you must be understanding. And when this couple comes into your counseling chambers and one of them says, my husband is having an affair, you have to ask him, how do you feel about that? You have to journey with them on their journey as a couple. And your job is to ask them questions and to probe and to, and to encourage them to talk out their differences and to come to some kind of understanding so that they can be happy and be in your congregation. Well, I used to do that. I did what I was taught, and I saw many couples divorce under my ministry. Now, when a couple comes and they're having marital trouble, I ask them a question. Are you willing to do whatever Jesus asks you to do? And are you willing to leave your sin? Are you willing to confess your sin and make it right? If you're not, let's not even talk. Now I don't have divorce in my ministry because they leave before it gets that far. Because they made a decision not to follow Jesus. Or there is restoration and healing because now they turn and confess their sins and they have Jesus standing between them. We have so feminized the American church that all I'm allowed to do now as a pastor is speak softly to you and entertain you and encourage you and love you. And one pastor said, when he was asked the question, what is the central message of your church? He said, love, 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 love. He said it five times. Do you know what the central message of the National Prayer Chapel is? Jesus Christ and his cross. And will you die to your ways and turn from your wickedness and follow Jesus Christ? Do you understand? I've just begun a little bit to unfold before you the giant that we face. It's not surprising to me that this whole place is not jammed and packed out with people. I mean, people don't come to this place. Expecting to get love, 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 love. Those of you who come know you're going to get the cross, the cross, the cross, and the cross. But you see, across this city, in the pulpits of this land, the American church has prostituted itself so that if a pastor stood in the pulpits of most churches and dealt with the cross, people would rise up in mass and depart. I want to read for you a scripture. It's found in 2 Thessalonians, the second chapter. This is concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. I urge you to read this entire second chapter, but today we're going to look specifically, specifically at verse 5 forward. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things. And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness or the secret power of Antichrist is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. He has been taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. Now, do you understand? Paul is saying that the Antichrist is going to come dressed in religious clothing. He's going to come dressed in the language that we understand as Christians, and he's going to come working signs and wonders and miracles. Take a look at Benny Hinn, who epitomizes the coming of the lawless one. But now watch. The coming of the lawless one, verse 9, will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. In other words, Satan is going to begin to flow into the body of Christ, and he is going to bring into the body of Christ wickedness, but it will not be recognized as wickedness because we will be at a place in our own minds and our own hearts where we don't recognize sin for sin because it seems very acceptable. So this dear sister who hosts this broadcast of rock music believes she's doing that for Jesus, doesn't see the wickedness that she's involved in. Her eyes have been covered. Now follow they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. In other words, if you follow after this American church of self indulgence, if you follow after this American church of of being tolerant. Whatever you want goes. Don't deal with sin. Don't confront. Allow whatever wickedness comes to just be added to the church. As one church over in Virginia, just a short ways from here, had their children bring in and save their quarters, nickels, and dimes. And when I heard about it, I said, what mission project are they working on? And I was told, oh, Papa, they're not working on a mission project. They're buying hot dog machines for the young people and Slurpee machines and a television and a video game and on and on. So they have a whole center set up for young people where the kids love to go to church. Well, why wouldn't they love to go to church? They're getting the world. But it's called church. So you can go to church and watch the latest movies. But it's holy because it's church. So in the American church, the Buddhists, the Muslims, The Hindus, the Jewish people, the Christians, they all have one thing in common. What they have in common is they want a lifestyle. They want to be a part of the American dream. They want to go for the next big house. They want to go for the next big vacation. They want to go for the next big car. They want to go for that next opportunity that presents itself where they can make even more money. I tell you something I was born to be successful. I've been hearing from the time I was a small child, what counts is that you go to high school and you go to college and you go to grad school, you need to be successful. You need to get that job. You need to go for it. You know, do you want to spend your life just earning enough to survive when you can make big time? And so when I became a pastor, the natural thing for me to do was to take my ability to speak and go to corporate, and do motivational speeches, and pick up $1,500 to $2,000. That was an easy flip for me. I mean, why can't I have a piece of apple pie, too? Now you don't have to go to corporate. You can do it right here in the sanctuary, and you can stand up here, and they'll come and throw money on on the platform. I mean, the show's on. Jericho City of Praise, let's rock. That's the American church. Prosperity. Let's get ahead. Let's make the American dream work. That's a giant in our land, and it has to be slain in the name of Jesus and by the blood of Jesus. And it means turning aside from the ways of the world, and it means eating this word. It means reading this word. Now, I don't know about you, but when the Holy Spirit told me I had to turn the television off, I groaned, and I would sit in the living room. And I didn't have anything to do. And I'd roam the house like a madman. What am I going to do without my TV? I was missing my drug. And Jan and I, we looked at each other and we said, if we don't go to the dollar movies, what are we going to do? At least we could go to the dollar movies and snuggle and nobody wanted us for anything. I mean, what are we going to do with our time and our energy? We're so bored. We're so bored. I mean, we're fast-paced people. We have to be entertained. I mean, if it's not collecting elephants, it's collecting starfish. It's seeing who can get the most junk first. The one with the most toys wins. Understand, this giant has to be killed. But if we haven't dealt with the lion and the bear, how do we deal with Goliath? If we can't cope with Brother Elab, and Elab speaks to us and says, you're spending too much time in your scriptures. You better get the business. How are we going to deal with the giant? So each of you in this room, you have your own little individual circle. And you come here, and you come like consumers. Okay, pastor, you give us something. Thank you very much, pastor. Now we'll go back home in our little circle, and we'll live our life the way we want to live it. So I go to the Kennedy Center, and I go to the opera, And I say to them, okay, I bought my ticket, give me the show. Make me cry a little, make me laugh a little, inspire me a little. Thank you very much. I've seen the show. I feel a little inspiration. I've had a few tears, and now I'm ready to come back, and now I'm just going to live my good American life. And you know what? I want to get ahead a little. I want to have a vacation. I want to have a life. Thank you very much. America has afforded me a wonderful opportunity. I'm an American Christian. I'm not a Christian American. That's an oxymoron. I sometimes wonder if any of us in this land can be saved. I confess as your pastor, I've been infected by the American church. There have been times when I should have spoken boldly against sin, and I didn't because I didn't want to appear judgmental. There have been times when people have told me things, and I've let it go by because I didn't want to cause them to flee. After all, I want to succeed too. And if I preach a gospel according to the word of God, I know I'm not going to succeed in the terms of the world. And everything in my soul cries out, succeed, win, be somebody, just do it, have no fear. Everything's possible for him who believes. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So go for it. And I tell you what, I've just had to lock the brakes on and throw the key away, and say, in the spirit, I give up being successful. I renounce being somebody, and I lift up the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, I know when you leave here, the great American enterprise is going to tear at your heart. It's going to speak to you a siren song of seduction. It's going to call you to come and play. It's going to tell you to carefully conserve all that you have and scramble to make more. It's going to tell you that God won't take care of you, that God helps those who help themselves. It's going to lie to you in the most seductive ways. And you're going to leave here. Some of you are going to leave here and say, I'm confused. The question is, will you or will you not deal with your sin? Will you deal with your lust for darkness? Will you deal with your lust for that addiction? Will you deal with your lust to be somebody? Will you deal with your lust to have a a happy fence around your house. Will you turn to Jesus and will you take up the cross and follow him? These are two very different religions. The American religion that is being broadcast across the city today is not the faith of our fathers. The Christian faith has been around now for over 2,000 years. America has been here just a little over 200. What we have come to is not the Christian faith. I am struggling day by day in my prayer closet to understand the difference between them. It should be plain to me, but it is not. The Holy Spirit has to come, lest I be given over to this delusion that God is already beginning to send across America. This delusion that says, I'm doing something for Jesus, and it's straight out of the pit of hell. There is a gospel of Jesus. It is not the gospel of psychology. It is not the gospel of feel-goodism. Not the gospel of narcissism. It's not the gospel of Jabaz. It's the gospel of the cross. Let's pray. Lord God of heaven, I have been seduced by the American church. And I beseech you today to make plain before my eyes the way of the cross. I ask, Lord God, that this delusion would be removed from my heart, that I could see and understand what my sin is, that your shed blood could break the bondage and release me. I thank you, Jesus. I pray in your holy name. Thank you so much for joining us today. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. You can find us online at nationalprayerchapel.com
0: or you can write to us at Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 2195. God bless you. We love you.